From BYU Broadcasting's Performance Studio, this is Highway 89. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Music and geography do not always come to mind as partners, but there is actually a surprising amount of music inspired by specific, memorable places. Ferdigrofe's Grand Canyon Suite comes to mind, maybe Mendelssohn's Hebrides Overture, E.J. Morin's In the Mountain Country, or maybe Espana by Chabrier. All the music today is by composer Marden Pond, and it's all tied to place. This place. The first work is a four-movement memorial to both a people and a place, a now non-existent Utah town called Clarion. It's called To Hallowed Ground and celebrates a daring group of Polish, Russian, and Ukrainian Jewish immigrants who built a town out of nothing right here in Utah. After that, we'll hear the Cocopelli Suite interpreting a Native American figure from rock art legend, best known for playing his flute. In the studio today are the musicians of the Clarion Festival Orchestra, directed by David Beck, with Monty Belknap, viola soloist, and Darren Bradford, featured flute soloist on Coco Pelli. We'll talk with the composer, the musicians throughout the program, but let's get started with the first movement of To Hallowed Ground, called Heritage Bought, Legacy Preserved, with a quote. One account of the time discusses 11 Jewish colonists who rode an open wagon through Gunnison, Utah, singing Ukrainian folk songs on their way to their new settlement of Clarion, three miles to the southwest.
We've just heard the first movement of To Hallowed Ground by Martin Pond, heritage brought, legacy preserved to the founders of Clarion. We're speaking with Martin Pond, who is an accomplished composer, but before we talk about credits and anything, how did you get connected with this particular project and with this ghost town that doesn't even exist anymore? I was commissioned to write a piece by the Utah Pioneer Heritage Arts Association they were helping to uh, sponsor a centennial celebration of the starting of that community, including um, descendants of those who had established the community originally. So you actually got to meet those, some of those descendants? Yes. Wonderful. Including one who was uh, just about 100 years old. And they had family memories of this, this little outpost in Utah? They did. This 100-year-old actually had personal memories. Oh, my goodness. Well, I was going to ask, you do hear little hints of, uh, I guess, what you call Slavic or, or some of those Middle Eastern modal scales in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, intended to give scales that would bring that flavor to, uh, to the music itself and hopefully remind those who heard it of the heritage of this place. And I understand that every single one of these movements, they talk about a relationship. The first one is the founders of Clarion, which is Clarion and the place connected. But the next one talks about the children there. Correct. And the reason that it talks about the children is the second movement has as one of its basic themes an actual Hebrew lullaby that it's built on. Mm. You know, as I read about this history and what you, what I know you have gone through and, and studied as you were writing this, the fact that they were promised that, A, the land would be good, it wasn't. It Correct. was sloped and rocky and full of gullies. Second, that there was a canal, which was not dug yet when they got there. That's right. How did they even survive? I think through sheer um, willingness mm-hmm. to try to establish the place and to um, keep the memory of their heritage uh, among their own people. Would you tell me about the, the first piece that you wrote, which is now the fourth and final movement, and performing that? Uh, The first piece that was written, as you say, was the fourth movement, and uh, it's the one that, for me, really established the style that I wanted to include in the entire piece, including some of these uh, exotic uh, Eastern European scales that are also associated with uh, Jewish heritage and gypsy heritage. Uh, I've had one member of the orchestra even mention that uh, some of this sounds a little Spanish, and that surprised me, too. Except when I thought as part of my research, I was reading about the Sephardic Jews that were yeah. uh, in Spain. So there are some f- fascinating cultural connections that hopefully show up in the music. And I think for lots of folks who are here in Utah, will you place Clarion on the map for us? Sure. Clarion is uh, just southwest of Gunnison. And some people will have to place Gunnison on a map. And Gunnison is actually it's not far from the, the very center of Utah. Um, I always remember that it's it's near um, Levan, mm-hmm. which uh, there are some who say is the center of Utah because if you spell it backwards, it's navel. Yes, and, and our, uh, our wonderful heritage. Yes, <laughs> and, and Gunnison uh, Gunnison is a few miles southeast of Levan, which is a few miles away from Nephi, which is a little bit south of Provo. Does that help? Yeah. <laughs> If not, use Google Earth. You'll find it. So what's there today when you go out and look at the the actual place? The only remnants of the community today, if you were to just drive by on the dirt road that goes through the town, you probably wouldn't even notice them. The only um, evidences are uh, crumbling concrete foundations 
the cistern that they tried to build mm -hmm. is still there, and if you know where to find it, you'll find a tumble-down concrete wall. Uh, this cistern broke as they were trying to fill it for the very first time, so you can see what they were facing from oh. the outset. You know, I was so interested that these were immigrants who had come to New York, many of them were back in the eastern area, very urbanized, but they had been farmers back in the Ukraine and in Poland, and they felt like their children were being citified, I guess was what you would say. They wanted to go back to the land. That's right. And in the communities or the cities that they were living, um, the entire families were facing having to work in sweatshops mm -hmm. and under very um, poor working conditions. So between the working conditions there and the fact that they were trying to maintain their agrarian and Jewish heritage, it uh, gave them pause to want to find another place. One quick question before we hear the second movement. Did you ever find a journal entry that, that discussed the moment that they arrived and what they thought of the place? No, however, I found entries that indicated that uh, they were promised a kind of agricultural Shangri-La where they were <laughs> okay. going to have uh, great soil and uh, great weather conditions and water and none of those things panned out. The uh -huh. soil is really rather rocky and full of ravines. Mm -hmm. Well, let's hear this number two, which is to the founders and the children of Clarion. From To Hallowed Ground by composer Martin Pond, we'll listen to Strangers in a Strange Land.
The work is by Martin Pond to Hallowed Ground. We heard the second movement, Strangers in a Strange Land, dedicated to the founders and the children of Clarion. Uh, Martin, I know that you're a serious composer. You take your work seriously. You develop your craft. But this has to be like a kid in a candy store to hear all these players playing what you had in your head. Oh, it is. However, I mentioned to the orchestra frequently that... Uh, Having a, a new group play a new piece, uh, as far as I understand from my wife, is a little bit like giving birth. <laughs> there's there's pain involved in, in the birth, but, Just but great joy. Keep breathing. Yes. Keep breathing. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have to mention our, our viola soloist today before I ask you about why you chose a viola for the solo instrument. Monty Belknap has a career of over 30 years. 1989, he won the International Starling Violin Competition, not viola, violin competition. And he has performed as a soloist or recitalist, Europe, South America, throughout the U.S., performed with the Juilliard Tokyo and LaSalle String Quartets and Beaux-Arts Piano Trio. He'll be performing in Italy this summer as part of the International Music Festival of the Adriatic. So highly qualified Interesting, A, that he's playing the viola instead of the violin, and that you chose viola for the, the solo piece. Why? I chose viola because uh, violin has so often been associated with uh, Jewish music. Stop and think of Fiddler on the Roof. And I wanted to have something with a little richer, deeper tone quality, the alto voice in the string. So a viola was a great way to go. And given the situation we're talking about, it almost seems like, because there is a bit of a mournful quality about the difficulty I don't know. I seem to feel that or imagine that anyway from hearing the viola. There is that quality. Um, it, I ought to mention why I ended up uh, calling Monty on this. He'd played uh, for me on a recording session a year or two previously. And before we started the session, he had his violin and he pulled out a viola bow and he said, do you like the sound of this on the violin better than the violin bow? Which I did. It added lots of richness. <laughs> and it was at that point I discovered that Monty was a very accomplished violist as well. Oh, I didn't even know that was even allowed, that there were separate unions or something <laughs> for different bows. It's just a higher degree of subtlety that they're aware of. Mm. Well, let me ask about this third movement we're heading into. This has the interesting uh, verbal conundrum of strangers, Gentiles, and brothers. Of course, to those Jewish settlers coming out, uh, they knew who Gentiles were. It was everybody but them. But also they came in among all these Mormon pioneers to whom everyone was a Gentile but them, one of the few times that uh, the Jews were called Gentiles. And yet, the people got along so well. That's right. The uh, residents of the Gunnison area embraced this community and tried to give them help as much as they could. And some uh, wonderful bonds were established between the two groups. Well, I think it's really nice you give credit to that, a nod to that, because we don't always hear. You, a lot of times when someone's settling a new area and someone is living next door, it becomes seen as a big competition. That's right. And I was able to make the combination here, musically, in the beginning of this movement, of some Jewish-type folk dance, and then make a transition at the end of the movement to something that sounds a little bit akin to an American hoedown. So mm. uh, combining those two, to me, was a way to show the combination between these two lovely communities. Well, let me introduce this movement by mentioning that uh, by spring of 1912, 156 residents were in the new town. That's 36 farms cultivating about 2,600 acres. Just picture that in the middle of the desert as we hear the third movement of To Hallowed Ground, Strangers, Gentiles, Brothers. Thank you. 
From To Hallowed Ground by Martin Pond, we've heard the third of four movements, Strangers, Gentiles, and Brothers, dedicated to the founders and the neighbors of Clarion. We're coming to you live from Studio 6, BYU Broadcasting, and I don't know if we've ever had this many players. Just so you know, five, excuse me, nine violins, three violas, three cellos, one string bass, one harp, one percussionist, and I guess if it were Christmas, I'd add a partridge and a pear tree. But we have just about filled every nook and cranny, and it's exciting to hear all this music happening all around us. Real quick, Dr. Martin Pond is a Utah composer with... Uh, very prolific history, over 300 different pieces registered with ASCAP, and I think you've taken particular delight in writing pieces that are connected to history. Well, I write pieces connected to things that I fall in love with. 
hopefully there's one for my wife in there. But uh, <laughs> okay. um, these places I've come to know and, and come to have a great fondness for because of the richness of the heritage that accompanies them. Well, I have to ask about this particular composition. Uh, when, you, when you look at a piece like this, and by the way, thank you for letting us do the broadcast premiere. That's very exciting to be able to air this to people who were unable to go to that original celebration. When you write a piece like this, and, and you've sort of finished the notes, finish, quote unquote, are you done, or do you, do you set it aside, do you stew over it for a while and keep making changes, or, or do you go with that original impulse? It can happen both ways. Uh, there are times that the notes can't tumble out of my head quick enough, and other times that I agonize over two or three little notes in a passage. So it, it happens both ways. I understand that you're working on a, a celebrating the 40th anniversary of the world record-setting flight of the SR-71 Blackbird, the fastest speed ever recorded by an air-breathing manned aircraft. <laughs> this was Mach 3.3. How do you celebrate that? Just have everyone play really fast? Very fast music. <laughs> okay. uh, actually, the piece is for symphonic winds and percussion, and uh, I've incorporated an actual recording of the aircraft in the piece. Oh, my goodness. And the, the group has to play in sync with this digital recording, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to try to put both of those things together. Very intriguing and very creative. And you're currently in pre-production on a film score, a production of an album with a trumpet ensemble. Tell me about this. Well, I've uh, had the pleasure of working for a number of years with the Gabriel Trumpet Ensemble uh, out of Salt Lake. It's seven trumpet players, um, organ, keyboard, and percussion. And Jay, who's playing with us today, is one of the members of that group as well. This group has been together for probably 11 or 12 years, and uh, we write mostly our own arrangements and compositions. You know, I'm so encouraged because uh, a lot of folks think of classical music as what those dead people wrote. And here you are, alive, kicking, writing music. And, and do you see a lot of current composition happening? Is, is there a dearth of, of commissions? Is that hard to find? Well, there's somewhat of a dearth of commissions because there are so many wonderful composers. Mm. Um, if you know where to look, there are some tremendous composers in this country and abroad that are doing wonderful things. If I can put a plug in for the Barlow Endowment here on the BYU campus mm -hmm. who helps foster that type of composition. They, they help provide commissions. Well, let's draw this particular piece to a close by hearing the original movement that you wrote before you developed the whole suite to hallowed ground. This is a pilgrimage and is dedicated to the founders and the descendants who Martin Pond actually got to meet some of. And this is sort of a tribute to people who have persevered through extreme obstacles and gives us a reason to move ahead and hope for a brighter future for ourselves to hallowed ground, a pilgrimage.
to Hallowed Ground is the name of the suite. We've heard all four movements by Martin Pond with viola soloist Monty Belknap, and we've been listening to the Clarion Festival Orchestra perform this work. I want to introduce the soloist to our next work. We'll speak to him for just a moment. Uh, Darren Bradford plays solo performances on clarinet, saxophone, and Celtic instruments with the Utah Symphony and the orchestra at Temple Square. Make a list here. You won't have enough fingers to count, but he plays all the flutes, soprano, alto, bass. Yes, there's a bass flute. Penny whistle, recorder, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass recorder. Irish flute, the Kenya, two kinds from South America, Zampona. I think he's making some of these up, some of these. A number of Native American flutes we'll hear today. Japanese shakuhachi, the chanter, which is the, the fingered part of the bagpipe. Clarinet, saxophones, solo, uh, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, oboe, English horn, bassoon, piano. He also sings, and he's a faculty member at the Brigham Young University School of Music, teaching saxophone and clarinet, and also a first-call recording artist and freelance musician on all kinds of woodwinds. Darren, thank you for playing today. Thank you. I'm out of breath just giving your credits here, but uh, how did you, among all the different woodwinds that you play, Get, make a connection with the uh, Native American flute. Well, it was uh, kind of through the back door. I used to do uh, so, uh, film scores for mm -hmm. a studio up in Salt Lake, and mostly playing clarinet and some flute and some saxophone. And they called me one day and said, can you find us an Indian flute? Well, I didn't even know what one looked like, but I made a lot of calls and from one person to another, and I finally found one. And I called him back and said, I've, I've got your Indian flute for you. And they said, well, we want you to play it. <laughs> so I had to immerse myself for a couple of weeks in all kinds of recordings, and we did uh, a movie called Lakota Moon, first movie with all Native American um, actors in it. And uh, the producers were up in the booth, and after the recording was all done, they came down, looked around to find who was the uh, Indian flutist, and, and they saw me with it, and they were surprised, which was really nice to thought uh, maybe they'd see somebody with the high cheekbones or something. <laughs> but you'd found the, the idiomatic way of Yeah, playing. I just got to get it in your ears and, and then in your fingers. Well, you know, you have played pretty much everything but the garden hose. Maybe you even play that. I wouldn't be surprised. But uh, but to play an instrument like this, it's not like you can say, I'd like, I'd like my flute in C or in G. How, because you've got four different flutes that you have to play for, for this. Are they keyed instruments? Are you able to get them that way? They are. Uh, the typical Indian flute is like a minor pentatonic. Uh, mm -hmm. Don't have all the notes readily available. Um, but I do have one. The first one I got was made by a former science teacher down at Springville High School, and he was taught by a guy named John Rayner, and has a very uh, good scale on it, and it's pretty much chromatic. So that one I've used a lot, and the other ones are the typical minor pentatonic, and each one has its own fingerings and own quirks and tunings. So we'll, so. we'll hear you play four different flutes today yes. on this piece. The name of the piece is Cocopelli Sketches, and you may not know his name, but you have seen Cocopelli, I bet, in rock art, even, yes, refrigerator magnets. He's hunched over, horns on his head, and almost invariably playing some kind of flute. Various Native Americans associate him with different groups, with music, with dance, with joy. He's a trickster, a mischief, mischief maker. To some, a fertility symbol related to spring, also a healer, a storyteller, and a magician. Some people see Cocopelli's image in the shadows of the moon, like lots of us might talk about seeing the man in the moon. We'll hear the legend of the four flutes, 
where the Zuni people wished for new music and ceremonial dances, and the god of dew gave each of four wise elders a flute. Coco Pelli's sketches, Darren Bradford's soloing, music by Martin Pond. Thank you. 
Cocopelli Sketches, Legend of the Four Flutes, music by Marden Pond, performed live in studio right now on Highway 89. That concludes an evening of music by composer Martin Pond. We're so glad he could be here in person today and talk with us about the pieces we've heard. We're grateful to each of the players and especially want to thank all those who helped coordinate all the musicians to make this happen. Thanks again, conductor David Beck, the Clarion Festival Overture, Monty Belknap, who was the viola soloist for the composition we opened the show with to Hallowed Ground, and Darren Bradford soloing on Native American flute for Cocopelli Sketches. Find information about composer Martin Pond. It's online at martinpond.com. If you're listening at home or if you've just caught part of our show, you'd like to hear the first part, hear it again, or share it. It's easy to do. All of our shows are archived online for free on-demand listening at byuradio.org highway89. And follow us on Twitter at BYUH89 for live show updates and special behind-the-scenes photos and video clips. Highway 89 is a production of BYU Broadcasting in Provo, Utah. The recording engineer is Mark Waite. Our associate producer is student Abby Horlocker. And the show's producer is Jackie Tataishi. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Thanks for listening. <laughs>